Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Ido Vokin Berlin. I'm Emily Tankin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 6th of November. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. We are waiting literally for the U.S. presidential election to be called for Joe Biden. So we will be talking about that. But before we do, Ido, what is your moment of this week? The moment that you think will go down in in history? Well, I think there's a moment that will go down in history, but I suspect it's the one you're going to pick. So I have to pick something different. My moment of the week are protests in Poland against a near-total abortion ban, which is not the first time this has happened. It happened a couple of years ago when Polish women took to the streets in their millions to protest the ruling Law and Justice Party's ban on abortion. And I think this is particularly interesting because Poland has a reputation for, in recent years, having imposed quite a lot of fairly nasty socially conservative policies, so in particular things like towns declaring themselves LGBT free zones. But on the flip side of that, you have a very strong civil society movement, which is against all these measures. And I'm not sure the nuance of these people who are protesting these measures really comes through in how we talk about Poland's government. And what's yours? (laughs) Well, the US presidential election, but specifically, I think I suspect that when I look back on this election, one of the things that I will remember is watching Trump supporters protest outside of the place where ballots were being counted in Maricopa County in Arizona, accusing those counting the ballots of stealing the vote. Some of them had guns with them because Arizona is an open carry state. They were sort of aggressively demanding that the people who were counting the votes continue to count the votes, which I can't stress enough is exactly what they were doing, and alleging fraud because the president had baselessly done so. You know, we can talk more about that over the course of this conversation, but I I think that that is remarkable. And so I uh, remarked on it just now. With that, let us introduce our guest. Our guest this week, we're delighted to have on this podcast with us today, Gary Young. He is a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, and obviously, more importantly, a New Statesman contributor. Gary, thank you so much for, for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Emily. So I want to start out with an amazing tweet that you sent out on election night which was, I think I'm going to have a nap while America figures out if it wants a narcissistic fascist or a milquetoast neoliberal to command the biggest army on earth. Someone wake me up in 20 years. If you could speak a bit about to your state of mind or being when you, when you, <laughs> when you said, because I think oh, there's, a, I, I frankly agree with it. So just your thoughts as you sent that and then how that state of mind, I guess, has, has changed or not over the course of the week. Well, I mean, first of all, like election nights, you know, they are kind of, they become a ritual. Usually, this is the first election I haven't been in the States since uh, 2004, and the first one I haven't covered in some way since 96. So, you know, I stayed up, even though I knew, well, I kind of hoped there would be a blowout, 
mm-hmm. and that we would know early, and then there wasn't a blowout. And then I'm just kind of, you know, refreshing my computer and kind of waiting for something to happen. And I do want to say that that tweet was probably sent at about half past two in the morning. It's not my best time. But that, obviously, I want Joe Biden to win. I'm mm-hmm. all in for the milquetoast neoliberal. If it's between that and uh, fascist, then it's not a problem. But like many, I think, this has been unipolar. I want Trump to lose. I really want him to lose. Biden winning, you know, of course, for Trump to lose, Biden must win. I'm not particularly excited about Biden as a candidate. Actually, I thought he was a terrible candidate. And I guess as time's gone on, one section of that has increased, which is the the fascist part of Trump. He's virtually declared a coup. You know, he said kind of more or less that night, he said, I'm going to go to the Supreme Court and get them to stop this whole business because I don't think I'm going to win. And if we take that and then the speech that he made in the early hours of Friday morning, which was bizarre, and the fact that the I think most of the news organizations kind of in the middle of kind of the counting of an election, the president is speaking, and they stop screening it because it's just too crazy speaks to someone, and we've yet to see whether this comes out, who's throwing a lighted match onto a whole set of Tinder white supremacists and and conspiracy theorists, and we're in the middle of a kind of, you know, fissile racial moment. But he's going to burn the house down because he's being asked to leave the house. Yes, and also said, I mean, in, in a way, it's like the, the history's least elegant coup because he said for weeks if not yeah. months leading up to the election, like, yeah, I'm going to do it, right? Yeah. I have to say that personally, the thing that would have been much more surprising to me is if he had come out and graciously made a statement of like, well, the things aren't looking our way, but we want to continue to see the votes counted. Like that really would have blown my mind. It's one of those things that we could expect and yet is nonetheless shocking. Right. I don't know how closely you've been following the Republican reaction to it. It looks like, I mean, again, the thing that was surprising to me is that there actually were some Republicans who now that he has almost certainly lost said, no, this is wrong. We have to continue to count the votes, including Pat Toomey, the senator from Pennsylvania, which is one of the states that Trump is contesting. But there were also some, you know, like Lindsey Graham, who got on Fox News and said nothing should be off the table, referring to faithless electors. So for our listeners, that's a person who votes in the Electoral College who does not vote the way that the state has has said they should, which is illegal in some states, but not in others. Mm. Did you find either reaction, either Republicans jumping ship or Republicans making clear that they're going down with the ship? Did, did either of those strike you or was it both kind of like, well, this is how we could have imagined this playing out? It shocked. It, it's surprising to me that more of them have not sought to draw a line under this, have not sought to jump from the ship. This, to me, would seem like the time, right? You you can't be further away from an election than now, because we've only just had one. So whatever damage it does, there's time to repair it. So I imagined Mitt Romney being kind of slightly more forceful, that kind of more of the kind of grandees. So, yeah, no, I, I was surprised that more of them didn't, and that the ones... I mean, Pat Toomey, great. Most Brits couldn't pick him out of a lineup, though. But I'm surprised that more of them haven't. Just briefly on this 
idea of Trump calling a coup. I was rereading some of the commentary that we put out in the days before the election and, you know, that was put out elsewhere. And they're kind of like, again, this is all caveated by the fact that it is the 6th of November and we have no idea what's going to happen in the coming days and weeks. But it was so kind of breathless and terrified that, you know, he would find some way to use the powers of his office to fraudulently steal the election. And for a budding coup, it incredibly there's there's such a lack of organization i mean honestly if i was planning to steal an election i had four years to plan it and the might of the most powerful government on earth behind me to do it i probably would do more than just mouth off on twitter and i'm curious what your what your thoughts are on the kind of utter lack of organization that we've seen but i think that if we go back to emily's point about what was the most remarkable thing you know this week that I think he was relying on, is relying on, and, and frankly, we still don't know how it's going to pan out, a kind of chaos ensuing that would allow him then to kind of step into the breach. So armed people at polling stations, maybe then counter-protesters. And it's not that that hasn't happened, but it hasn't happened in the on the scale yet that I think he would have wanted. And then into that chaos, you can say, look, see, this is all nonsense. This is all crazy. You have to call the whole thing off and stop the count and so on. So I think that it wasn't organized, but there was a curation to it, which is just not playing out at quite the level that he would like. There was that report in Pittsburgh. They arrested a couple of people who were, they think were, armed and planning to storm the vote centre. I don't think, I mean, of the things that aren't off the table, I think things like that, this is a kind of incredibly unpopular. <laughs> One of the trend lines of, of gun ownership in America over the last 10 or 15 years is that there are less people owning guns and there are more guns. So you have an increasingly armed population and most of those are the kind of people who love Trump. And I think if you really, if you believed him, if you really thought that the election was being stolen, and if you look at the kind of pressure points of where this is happening, black cities, Detroit, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, or certainly white minority cities, but often predominantly black, then I can imagine all kinds of things happening. And I, I think as much as there was a plan, that was the plan. Right. I think it's worth noting that he's not saying that there's fraud in Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. He's saying that there's fraud in Philadelphia. You know, he's not saying that there's fraud in, I don't know, Western Michigan. He's saying that there's fraud in Detroit. Like there's a racial element to this that we, well, actually not even element. Like it's, it's the undertone, it's the overtone, right? It's, it's a huge part of what's, what's happening here. That's the Trump supporting narrative or the narrative that Trump supporters, that is beginning to emerge among Trump supporters. But there were two other kind of narratives that emerged on election night and have been batted about since that I wanted to, to put to you. The first is you, you saw people on election night just express this grave disappointment, not only that it wasn't a blowout, but that it, that it wasn't a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism and, and that, you know, the kind of moral victory that Democrats were hoping for against mm. Trump would not come. Do you think that either that was premature or alternatively that they were hoping for something that, that was never going to, to come? I think that it might have come. I had hoped it would come. But I feel that one of the things, I think Trump voters are kind of seem, although they shouldn't, seem unknowable 
to kind of liberals and some leftists are kind of like, why would anybody support him? Why would they? And in my reporting, when I lived there and covered the 2016 elections, the midterms, and I went back to the town that I was in in 2016, is that Trump supporters, first of all, many of them don't particularly like him. They see exactly what we see, but that he has delivered for them. He's delivered Supreme Court, tax cuts, deregulation, and he's kind of delivered for them because of the nature of his kind of refusal to even engage with any kind of sense of consensus. Until coronavirus, he had delivered for them. And so we shouldn't be as surprised as all that, I think. But that nonetheless, I mean, you know, it's the hope that kills you. And one would want to think that when it appears, when the racism and the bigotry and the misogyny and the contempt appears so unvarnished that you would have touched bottom, and that's not the case. And I think there's a good reason for that, which is, or I mean, it's an awful reason, but there's a clear reason, I think, which is while I do not think that his support for him can entirely be understood as a result of racism, I think it cannot be understood without understanding racism, if you see what I mean. That's not all there is. 100%, good, yes. But it underpins it. And that we've got 20 years, 25 years before America is a minority, where white people are in a minority. And the anxiety about that and the sense of, of loss and indignation almost is playing out in this horribly tortured, sometimes violent and divisive way. And so I'm not sure that was that the run-up to that process, the denouement of that process was ever going to be pretty. I don't know that it had to be this ugly. No, I mean, I listeners to this podcast will know that I was convinced that, that Trump would win or that it would be closer than it was because there are so many people who, who support him, right? And who either aren't bothered by the bigotry or who or who like it. This is the other narrative that I wanted to to speak about that came out that's that has come out this week, which is because exit polls, which we should note in the United States are I under I know that in the UK they're the gold standard, but in the US they're highly unreliable, particularly early exit polls. Trump increased support with Hispanic American voters in some states, particularly Cuban Americans in Florida, but also some Hispanic voters in Texas. He increased support among Black American voters, and in fact, among every group but white men. Now, my frustration with this narrative is that every time Trump gets votes, there is a tendency in certain corners to either be like, well, whose fault is that? Or alternatively, to be like, haha, you white liberals don't understand why Trump is really popular. You see, it wasn't about race. What did you make of that? First of all, I was somewhat skeptical. I think that the two of them should be disengaged, if you like. Bush got 44% of the Latino vote in 2000. So this is still, Trump's support among Latinos is still really low. And the Latino, the group that we know as Latino or Latinx, is a very, very disparate group. I mean... Right, like a vast and <laughs> it's many millions of people. Yeah, and, and that kind of... I know that all categories are constructs, but this is a new and not particularly tight construct that goes from 
Mexicans in Texas to Cubans in Florida. So an awful lot of the kind of xenophobia that he talked about, I can imagine many of those groups, I don't know, but say you're kind of white, wealthy Colombian or Argentinian or thinking, yeah, those Mexicans coming across the border, that, you know, they're a real problem. That doesn't blow my mind at all. There's been a much, much said about Florida and the kind of issues of the specter of socialism with, you know, Cubans, Nicaraguans, uh, Venezuelan communities who live there. So I kind of think that to the extent that it's true, it's not been uniform. Certainly, if you look at California or uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, they've played out quite differently. And if he was doing so well among that group, I think we would have we would be seeing different things in those places. African Americans, to the extent that it's true, so that's the first thing. Is it true? If it were true, frankly, there is a major bit of me that is surprised that that does think really people taking a look at him and thinking, yeah, I'll go for that as an, as a as a black person myself. There has been the lowest level of unemployment among black people under his tenure in America's history. That is true. There have been terrible jobs, but they are jobs. And also there is a very conservative streak within the African-American community, always has been, that, you know, is all about pull your pants up and respectability politics and kind of, and all of that. And Joe Biden, while he is nowhere close to having the kind of history or the rhetoric that Trump has, doesn't have a great record when it comes to race. Kamala Harris went for him about his his opposition to busing, his kind of thing with Anita Hill, the thing he said in the radio station when he said, you know, if you don't support me if, or if you don't know if you're for or against Trump, then you're not black. So in a range of ways, Interestingly, as it was African-Americans who made him the candidate, he was nowhere until South Carolina. African-Americans made him the candidate. So within the Democratic family, they supported him. But within the country at large, I think that, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that there would have been reticence about Biden. It does still surprise me, notwithstanding the unemployment issue and the fact that there's nothing to stop black people, and particularly black men, being particularly reactionary. Um, they're just probably not going to be that reactionary about race. It doesn't surprise me. And they worked hard at it. They worked hard, much harder than Republicans. I've said, you know, I can't imagine Mitt Romney in a photo op with Lil Wayne or uh, 50 Cent or Ice Cube. It was not for one to try him. Although we should also note that, you know, if you look at the states that are going to give this election to Joe Biden, and you look at Philadelphia, and you look at Atlanta, and you look at Detroit, to say that the Black American turnout for Biden, I don't think you can imagine a Joe Biden presidency had Black American voters not turned out for Joe Biden. And just, we should note that. Absolutely. That kind of, um, this whole thing is hinging on the turnout that he has kind of clearly sufficiently repelled a large number of people. And because the turnout was so large, they're clearly drawing in a large number of people who may not have voted before. And that can go either way. So there are real there are real limits to the demography 
narrative because even if it's true that there was a significant increase in support for Trump, there was also, as you pointed out, a massive turnout for Biden. The Democrats have not won, with the exception of 64, they've not won an election with the white vote since the war. And increasingly, as the electorate becomes racially polarised, it's unthinkable that they would get anywhere without the black vote. And then, they, and finally, there is an interesting thing of what role did or didn't, and I don't have an answer to this, Kamala Harris play. It's not Obama. She's not the presidential candidate, but she is there, and um, she's backing up a kind of septuagenarian who doesn't always look that clever on his pins. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. You wrote a really excellent story for the New Statesman last week in which you attempted to distinguish what is truly an aberration in the Trump presidency from what is merely a continuum of what came before, particularly around racism and issues like disenfranchisement of felons and issues like that. For readers who haven't read the story, can you set out what you argued and and how you think that's held up in the wake of the election? Yeah. What I was trying to say was that there is this notion that he is violating democratic norms and that this is new. There was a Thomas Friedman article where he says, not since 1860, not in 1861, not during Nixon's time, not during Pearl Harbor, have has our democracy ever been more more in peril? The, the piece tries to kind of poke at that and say, look, the democratic norms aren't that robust, actually, that America was a slave state for a couple of hundred years and it was a apartheid state for a hundred years. It's only been a non-racial democracy for 60 years. And that even within that notion of it being a non-racial democracy, there are all of these democratic deficits, you know, felons who can't vote, demands for voter ID, this issue of fraudulent elections, which cannot be backed up in reality, is not something that he created. They gutted the Voting Rights Act of 65 the Supreme Court did in 2013. And they effectively said, this is an old disease which has been cured. And that is self-evidently, if you look at who can't vote and why and who is who they try and stop voting and why, then that's evidently not true. But that doesn't mean that he does not represent something different. And it's important not to downplay how different he is, because the way in which he's different really matters. But it's also really important to look at where what he's doing is actually kind of supersizing what's gone before, because otherwise there is some sense that everything was good before and that there is an old normal that we should return to where democracy was functioning just fine. And it really wasn't. And if you add on top of that, sorry, gerrymandering, which is more about house races, but where effectively the politicians choose their electorate. And I think what we've seen in this election is the kind of, particularly in the tail end, 
you've seen the kind of ramping up, which we've kind of referred to in different ways in this conversation, of the kind of the racialization of this moment, that the fraudulent votes are the votes in the cities. Detroit is a fraud. Philadelphia is just the fact that those votes are coming from those places. And that I do think that there is a pervasive undertow within the conservative mindset that says, you know what, these people shouldn't really be voting. These people, it's not fair that they should decide what happens to this country. There is a kind of a failure to reckon with black people in particular, but not just black people, as equal citizens. And that this is where we are now with this notion that those votes don't count and therefore don't count those votes. Absolutely. And on that depressing note, it's now time for a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call. You ask us. We have a question from an anonymous listener, and it is, assuming Biden gets over the line, will the fact that the Senate has stayed Republican stop any of his meaningful policies from happening? We should caveat this by saying that we don't actually, that, that while it is likely that Republicans hold the Senate, it is not certain yet. There will probably be not one, but two runoff elections in Georgia in January. And Al Gross, the independent Jewish doctor who's like wrestled a bear and and <laughs> and is running in Alaska, um, has not conceded yet. So let's let's assume that it's a Biden presidency and let's assume that the Republicans keep the Senate. What does that do for Biden's agenda? Gary, we will we will let you take the first the first stab at this. I think it's really serious. Even when Obama had a supermajority for a little while in his first couple of years, there was a limit to what he could do. He did get the um, Affordable Care Act, the healthcare plan through. And I think it's really serious because, well, what came after the Obama presidency? Well, the Tea Party and a massive backlash in 2010. And Biden, assuming Biden wins, He comes in in the middle of a massive economic downturn, the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of kind of this racial tension with an agenda that is not particularly ambitious even. But even with that agenda, if it's stalled, then that grows the cynicism. It grows the cynicism that it doesn't matter and that you want someone who's a quote-unquote disruptor. Trump emerged out of precisely that stasis. So I I think it's quite serious. I completely agree. I think you can already see signs that that the Republicans in the Senate are going to be content to be obstructionist for two or four years. McConnell world Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already suggested in the press that they uh, will not approve progressive cabinet members. I I think that there there are big structural changes that progressives want to see that are just not going to happen now in all likelihood. My dad on Wednesday was like, you're not getting DC statehood now. But and and you know, it's not just DC statehood, it's the Electoral College, it's the Supreme Court will not be packed, it's the filibuster will not be abolished. Having said that, I think especially on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, there was a lot of people were despondent about the idea of the Senate not being taken back. And I would just say that having Trump in the White House and having Trump not in the White House, like those are not the same thing. First of all, Trump himself has given a playbook for getting around Congress and that he has acting secretaries of this and de- deputy heads of that across the executive branch. Although I'm not sure that I doubt that Biden will be willing to do the same, but it's possible he could. And second of all, like m- many of the damaging policies 
during these past four years have come from the executive branch, right? Like Trump's immigration policies, those don't have to continue under a President Biden. There is still work that he can do on climate change that does not require congressional approval. So it will be a frustrating two years, especially because I think many Democrats are kind of bracing themselves for a very tough midterm election. But I think that the impact of not having Trump in the White House, it shouldn't be overstated, right? We shouldn't assume that, okay, this is over, we can tune out now. But it also shouldn't be, it's not nothing that, that Trump lost. I think there's there's something quite interesting there, which is these two years, assuming Biden wins and the Republicans hold the Senate, are going to be quite an interesting test for whether Biden's image and like pitch of himself as this kind of guy who can reach across the aisle and work with people from both sides is actually true. And the way we've spoken about the Republican Senate so far suggests that we very much hold the premise of the, I guess, since the Obama years or perhaps before that Republicans really cannot work with Democrats. They must be eternally at loggerheads. And my suspicion is very much that that will will continue to be the case. But Biden's pitch of himself has been someone who is able to work with people from the other party, is able to form consensus, where in American politics over the past few years, there's been very little of that. And perhaps the next couple of years will will be a test of Biden's ability to do that. It's just that the thing that he's the things that he's created consensus on, kind of quite a lot of them have been really awful, you know. Right. And, you know, he reached across the aisle to do in Anita Hill, NAFTA, the Iraq War. There is something true in what Trump does, right? When Trump talks about people who've been forgotten and who feel marginalized and but that's not nothing there is there are reasons why he's doing has done as well as he has and the truth is while i'm glad that trump has lost and therefore i'm glad that biden's won biden is implicated quite deeply implicated in the quagmire that helped produce trump and that doesn't mean that he has to be from here on in that he might not change that he might not kind of understand that this is a kind of new moment. I saw somewhere someone saying, you know, now Biden has to kind of rise to the level of FDR and or um, Ronald Reagan. And it's like, yeah, but both of them had really clear agendas <laughs> on different parts of their art. And their agendas weren't about making nice. They had a vision. And in the absence of that, you just have deal making that may well leave the same people feeling left out. It's a worry to me. That is a great point. And we will ask you for one more great point before we let you go, because we are going to wrap up this podcast and (laughs) AP Politics Twitter account to see if they call this race. Before we let you go, if you could tell us what in the wonderful world of international affairs you will be uh, keeping an eye on in the week ahead. I will be keeping an eye on the responses to this election, how leaders, Bolsonaro, Johnson and others, how they respond to this kind of moment. We've had these four years of a kind of chaos. So I'm really going to be really interested in the degree to which they wade in or step back and just kind of um, play it as though it's normal or whether they do something else. Certainly, certainly worth watching. Ido, what will you be keeping an eye on? Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a really important point. Amazingly, 
stuff is actually happening outside of America. So I'll be looking at the crunch talks for a Brexit deal in Brussels because that is incredibly still happening in under two months. And so far, no deal has been agreed. So we'll see what happens with that. And you, Emily? I think the next week will be really key in seeing how seriously the American judicial system takes Trump's baseless claims of of election fraud. We'll see whether this thing gets tied up in court or if it's a, a clean. It's already not a clean cut, but I think we'll see in the next week. You know, if if this thing gets bogged down in the legal process, or if we move on to the next chapter in a the story that is American democracy. All that remains is to say thank you so much, Gary Young, for for joining us on this uh, this day. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review and follow all of our international coverage, including that of the U.S. election, at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thanks for listening and until next week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hold up. 